Welcome to another episode of Positive Sun. My name is Scott Harvey. I study finance and economics at Northeastern University and have had co-op experiences within traditional investment management and the ESG space. I host this podcast. Each episode in this podcast will ultimately reflect my positive sum framework within the context of the social contract. Specifically, I favor understanding how a diverse, equitable, and inclusive social contract can enable a pluralistic, anti-racist, multicultural democracy to thrive economically in a positive sum way. In other words, this podcast is a about a positive sum social contract. It is hypothetical, but it is the basis from which I discuss any alternative version of the social contract. The term positive sum represents an economic framework rooted in sustainable principles. It's currently one of many hypotheses I have developed in my free time throughout the course of my undergraduate career. I introduced the idea of positive sum in the previous episode and recommend listening to that episode first. Throughout this episode, I will be testing this hypothesis as I share research that either supports how it currently exists, advances some aspects, or dismisses others. If you don't have time to listen to the previous episode, I will briefly summarize the idea now. Positive sum is a term from game theory that exists relative to negative sum and zero sum. While these terms have formal technical definitions from game theory, I deviate a little bit by adding my own perspective of what these terms mean. For example, a positive sum transaction involves parties that view the present value of all future reciprocations with their current counterpart as positive. Negative sum involves parties that view it as negative. Zero sum involves parties that view it as equal to zero. In other words, positive sum can be categorized as liberating, while negative sum can be categorized as oppressive, and zero sum can be categorized as indifferent. A social contract, on the other hand, is not an idea I have developed on my own. It has a long philosophical history, and it is the topic of this episode. For however long this episode ends up taking, I will continue to consider the same question as the previous episode. What is a positive sum social contract? But this time the subject is about the social contract rather than positive sum. This concept has a long philosophical history with informal elements dating back to ancient Greece and the first formal references of the term beginning around the European Enlightenment era. Some philosophers specializing in this field of study include Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Immanuel Kant, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and John Rawls. Generally, I like to think that a social contract outlines the agreements between all stakeholders that exist in the society. It is at the foundation of social, political, and economic stability in any society on earth. Recent examples in the U.S. can be summarized by different federal policy agendas since the Great Depression. A few include the New Deal championed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the Great Society supported by Lyndon Baines Johnson, Reaganomics championed by Ronald Reagan, and now the Green New Deal currently supported by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. All of these examples are indicative of different social contracts. Some build on their predecessors, others are in complete competition. Currently, we face a long list of systemic issues. 
Climate change, economic inequality, and historical social inequities are just a few. They highlight unmet needs, unrecognized trauma, and unresolved exploitation and destruction of people and the environment. But there is hope and reason to be optimistic. In response to groups advocating for change and exposing the real nature of society and the environment, the culture is evolving. The culture is evolving as perspectives change about what is acceptable behavior during specific situations and under certain identities. As these definitions change, so do the narratives we rely on to make sense of the world. This then affects the current legal landscape and economic activities. During the existing market-based economic system, a changing social contract results in changing market equilibria, influencing the state of the aggregate economy and everyone's well-being. Many in favor of resolving the systemic issues disrupting the current social contract call for more progressive and liberal solutions. I'm inclined to agree. Specifically, I would prefer the social contract to involve positive-sum interactions and incentivize positive-sum mindsets as often as possible. We have chosen to prefer a social contract that values diversity, inclusivity, and equity, one that prioritizes democratic traditions, enables pluralism, disseminates anti-racism, and is empowered by multiculturalism. The ideal version of this social contract is very different from the one that currently exists. While progress has been made in the past towards this ideal, the current social contract continues to be influenced by white supremacist and patriarchal traditions. This is unacceptable. These traditions are not compatible with my positive-sum framework. They instead incentivize zero-sum and negative-sum activities and mindsets, resulting in less economic prosperity and less sustainability in the long run. It is correct to view this as a hypothesis. This type of social contract makes the most sense to me. In order to fix the systemic issues threatening the stability of society in multiple ways simultaneously. The ideas that make up this type of social contract seem best equipped to handle the issues we face. With that being said, I am open to testing this hypothesis and accepting better alternatives if they exist. For the rest of this episode, I will continue to talk about the social contract using academic resources to support some of the claims I've made so far, and to act as a starting point from which future research about this topic begins. The social contract reflects all the ways that we organize things that we need delivered collectively. I would say the social contract is broken. If I describe the social contract as it was until the late 20th century, you're probably thinking that it has nothing to do with the society that I live in. I often think of COVID as the great revealer. It reveals the frailties in our social contract, and I would argue that if we had a better social contract, we would have been in a much better position to deal with COVID. These incredibly significant statements were made by Manoush Shafiq, the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, during an interview on YouTube with colleagues at the LSE about her new book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society. I'll include the link to this 
interview in the description of this episode. The implications of these statements are massive because of the scale and scope of a concept she called the social contract. Shafiq even begins the first chapter, which is called, What is the Social Contract? with the sentence, Society is Everything. She leads with this sentence before an anecdote describing the nebulous bigger forces that exist outside our control and that somehow affect our lives on a daily basis. This passage primes the reader about the scale and scope of the topics in this book. Given the title of this chapter the title of the book, and the language used in the first few sentences in this passage, it is reasonable to infer that these bigger forces is a reference of the social contract. Beginning with society is everything and following up with a description of these bigger forces in society are thus evidence that the scale and scope of a social contract is big enough to capture everything that happens in society. It is foundational to society itself. Making such a statement at the beginning of this book is symbolic because it sets the tone of this conversation about the social contract right from the start. I also want to adopt this type of tone when talking about the social contract in this podcast. I choose to make the social contract a focal aspect because it is so important. It is at the foundation of civilization itself. Without a coherent social contract in any society, we run risk of experiencing serious problems. The nature of a social contract in a society defines how a society is ultimately organized. Most decisions in this space are determined through the political system and within political institutions in any society. It is not much of an economic concept, but after reading a book called Why Nations Fail by Daron Asamoglu and James Robinson, I learned that it is politics and political institutions that determine what economic institutions a country has. Thus, at the bare minimum, economic stability is dependent on political stability. However, ideally, I prefer to have a system that provides sustained economic prosperity for the broadest cross-section of society possible rather than just the bare minimum. Asimoglu and Robinson present two types of political and economic institutions, extractive and inclusive institutions. The bare minimum would involve the easiest path towards economic stability. Historically, the easiest path involves choices to establish extractive political and economic institutions. Generally, these institutions are authoritarian and exploitative. A more positive sum option, and thus a more sustainable option, would be to choose inclusive economic and political institutions. How these political and economic institutions are set up is a result of the social contract. Until recently, I would consider all of these institutions centralized. Either they are a private company like Apple or Amazon, some nonprofit organization like the Nature Conservancy, or a government organization like the U.S. Senate. But now I have a different perspective after reading Why Nations Fail and studying the Jutuansi from Southern Africa. They can be more abstract and decentralized. For example, the U.S. Constitution is a political institution. In the Jutuansi, Hixaro gift-giving tradition seems like an economic institution. Political and economic institutions are important aspects of the social contract because they are the result of a choice people in society make that Shafiq highlights really well. 
After her anecdote of the nebulous bigger forces and how they affect our lives, she begins to define what those bigger forces are more concretely. First, she begins with the following passage from her book. The way a society is structured has profound consequences for the lives of those living in it and the architecture of opportunities they face. It determines not just the material conditions, but also their well-being, relationships, and life prospects. The structure of society is determined by institutions such as its political and legal systems, the economy, and the way in which family and community life are organized. Shafiq then summarizes this dynamic with a choice any society faces between whether individuals are responsible for satisfying their own preferences for a specific widget, or whether specific widgets should be provided for others through collective activity. At the end of all of this work, a social contract is established and hopefully it lasts a long time. The result of this choice ends up creating markets for goods and services, but the nature of these markets tends to be different depending on what people in any particular society chooses, assuming they choose to have a market-based economy in the first place. If an individual is responsible for producing a widget by themselves, then they do a lot of the work to produce the final widget by themselves. There isn't much opportunity for an economic market to develop. They use their own time rather than paying another person or institution to produce this widget instead. To better understand this trade-off, consider an example about making food generally influenced by Shafiq's outline of this choice. Currently, we either buy complete meals from a store or restaurant or make our own meals using ingredients we buy at the store or develop at home. On the extreme individualistic end of this spectrum, I would expect a society to create a clause in the social contract requiring everyone to produce everything they ate by themselves. On the extreme collectivistic end of this spectrum, I would expect a society to create a clause in the social contract that no one would have to produce anything that they ate entirely by themselves. It is possible that everything is prepared for everyone ahead of time by a specific institution and no single individual has to be responsible for feeding themselves in this collectivistic extreme. Both extremes seem outlandish to me, but they probably offer a net benefit in certain situations. Nonetheless, they do not represent the clauses in the social contract I experience. Throughout my life, I've learned to enjoy cooking sometimes and eating out at restaurants during other times. I can't produce all the ingredients I use when I cook, but I like to make the final meals however I want. Other times, I enjoy going out to restaurants and buying food to socialize or for the convenience of not cooking. This combination of eating out, buying prepared ingredients, and making my own meals at different times is some combination of these two extremes, making them useful conceptual devices at the very least. 
These extremes represent the choices that exist when a society develops a social contract. First, they choose a path to go down, and it is either towards the more individualistic or the more collectivistic extreme. Along the way, they may reach a final destination somewhere in between them. Thus, every clause in the social contract involves some collective coordination to deliver the things we need on a regular basis. Even if I make my food at home, I did not procure all the tools and resources alone. Since I am still a student, this means that someone else bought the home I'm cooking in, designed the kitchen, and bought the major cooking equipment. Even though I purchased the ingredients from a local supermarket, and it is a relatively individualistic task than buying my final meal from a restaurant, I still rely a lot on people to make it possible for me to cook my meal. It is extremely likely I will never meet any of these people and that many of them will never meet each other. Yet, they are able to coordinate and produce all the right widgets, sometimes simultaneously, so that I can either buy my food from a restaurant or cook it at home at any given point in time. It is truly a fascinating process. It is humbling that any of this is even possible, but it's not obvious how to make anything from scratch by myself, even something as common as a meal or a pencil. In high school, my history teacher junior year promised that if we could make a pencil from scratch by ourselves, he would give us an automatic A on the final without having to take it. Initially, it seemed like a simple deal, but it was impossible for most of us to source all of the materials and machinery to make a pencil. Even though pencils have been very common and cheap in my life, the production process is actually quite complex. The wood, the graphite, the, the eraser, the metal strip connecting the eraser to the wooden part require highly specialized processes, machineries, skills, and materials to make. I don't have access to any of these requirements. If I had to guess, the easiest part would be making the wood, but even that seems difficult. How would I shape it to, so that the graphite fits in the middle? How would I seal the two halves of wood so that the pencil works? Eventually, I would have to decide to allow my confusion to go on forever and never make a pencil or learn how to do this from a source online. Doing the latter ends up breaking the deal with my teacher, so I didn't do it. Long story short, I didn't get exempt from the final nor did any of my classmates, but it was a very valuable experience that I will never forget. I will never forget that whether it is food or pencil, everything in society has some collective element to producing enough to satisfy even my personal demand. I can't do it all by myself, and I don't think anyone else can. This is why the social contract is so central to fixing these systemic issues. While the concept is practically defined through a political mechanism, it impacts economic markets. It affects their nature. Shafiq defines the social contract as the norms and rules governing how collective institutions operate. These institutions include the same political and economic institutions described by Asimoglu and Robinson. When I first read this definition, I was curious why she only focused on the collective side of the equation. But now, after the various examples I just described, it's clearer to me. The social contract matters insofar as a society chooses to produce widgets collectively. 
Otherwise, there is no need for any reciprocations. An economy would not be necessary, nor would a government. Everyone would be trying to survive alone. Everyone would be self-sufficient and would likely mimic the lives of solitary predators. This reality would be very depressing and very dramatic. This would not be good for our mental health. We need to socialize. We are generally social beings. This would be a miserable life. Thus, while every aspect of society may have individualistic elements, there will always be a collective base from which individuals can deviate how they please. So, why now? If a social contract requires a lot of difficult decisions and involves everything in society, why am I focusing on it now? Why have I introduced my positive sum framework? First, I find that these concepts are an accurate representation of how the economy works and can be valuable contributions to more practical conversations. Economics are completely dependent on politics. The social contract is defined by the political process. In other words, it's the product of politics. Thus, economics are defined by the social contract. Economics is dependent on history, politics, and culture. Each of these factors are regionally dependent and help cause economic models to vary. Each of these factors can be captured by the social contract to varying degrees. The positive sum framework helps categorize and assess how well clauses in the social contract contribute to improved economic well-being sustainably over time. It helps view clauses of social contracts as either oppressive, which is a negative sum interaction, indifferent, which is a zero sum interaction, or liberating, which is a positive sum interaction. While generally negative-sum outcomes are bad and positive-sum outcomes are good, zero-sum outcomes can be good or bad depending on the situation. Second, I find this type of analysis fun. Genuinely, it's rich and complex, and that energizes me. It helps fill gaps unanswered by my formal coursework about economic frameworks and helps me understand how contemporary society works and its historical roots. I find this fascinating. I prefer to be able to understand the fundamental principles and the bigger picture whenever learning a subject. The positive sum framework in the context of the social contract helps me to do both. Third, the social contract is broken. Shafiq said it best. COVID is the great revealer. It has helped highlight all the weaknesses that currently exist in society and which groups are the most vulnerable to any form of downside risk. There are many debates occurring in the political arena within many societies in the global West, such as the United States. Many of them are about issues fundamental to how society operates. Shafiq considers these debates to be about fractures in the social contract. 
Different interest groups are arguing for solutions that are supported by mutually exclusive sets of values. The vast political divisions in the United States represent how opposed these sets of values truly are. Regardless of these values, however, they are merely different reactions to the same systemic problems threatening economic, social, political, and environmental sustainability and stability. Whether these issues stem from globalization, capitalism, changing demographics, technological innovation, or environmental exploitation, everyone seems to be recognizing that the clauses of the social contract most important to them are not working anymore. I agree with some and disagree with others about solutions, but at least we notice something is wrong. Major divisions exist because it seems we cannot agree on why something is wrong, and we focus explanations on different factors. Some are rooted in prejudice, scapegoating, and bigotry, which is unacceptable. Some seem quite unaware about how inadequate and unprepared traditional mechanisms are in order to solve these novel and systemic issues. This is naive and also unacceptable. Some are more innovative yet pragmatic and recognize the need for reform. This is a good start, but arguments get drowned out by more ideological arguments. Some want new institutions altogether. This can be effective to achieve rapid change, but could end up causing many new problems that lead to unnecessary suffering at a large scale. As a result, the current social contract needs to be scrutinized because all the systemic issues threatening the stability of society are self-induced by the current norms and rules governing how collective institutions operate. We need to rethink what these norms and rules will be and the types of outcomes we want from specific institutions. Ideally, these norms and rules ought to be in line with my positive sum framework, but this is only a hypothesis. If my hypothesis proves true, they should enable and incentivize positive sum economic and social activity to thus incentivize systemic sustainability. These activities can range from being outside the purview of any economic marketplace to those being directly involved with them. Otherwise, market and non-market activities will be subject to rules and norms that reinforce short-term thinking with the goal of maximizing short-term gains at the expense of overall long-term economic prosperity that could benefit the broadest cross-section of society. This is a summary of the current social contract. As of now, it will persist because no lasting reform has happened yet. This is unacceptable to me and I hope others can agree or at least find this stance valid and understandable. Thanks for listening. The journey will continue with the next episode as I expand many of the ideas presented in these first few episodes. For the foreseeable future, I plan to do different types of episodes. For now, they can be summarized by a few categories, which include episodes focused primarily on either my hypotheses book reviews, takeaways about current events, and any formal concepts from any discipline that may be relevant to ongoing topics within this podcast. Ultimately, I would like to collaborate with anyone interested in recording conversations about any ongoing or new topics related to this space. 
I look forward to hearing from you and will include contact information in the description of this episode. Okay, I think that's it for now. There's a a lot to digest in this episode, and I've only scratched the surface. Nonetheless, it's a start, and the possible directions seem endless for future episodes. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to connecting again during future episodes.